Regularly, the elders at our church gather together to pray for you all and to kind of walk around the perimeter of the sheepfold and, and then check the fencing to make sure that wolves aren't coming on in and uh, that things are going well, and we, we love you in that way. We desire to, to care for you in that way. And one thing that we've been revisiting uh, repeatedly over the course of the last six months to almost maybe a year now, actually, we continually been coming back to a desire to try to encourage and equip you to have thriving Christian relationships. I could summarize it just like that. We want for you to have friendships and relationships with other people here at the Mission Church better than ever before. We want to outdo all of the other places that you've had good relationships. We think that's a good and lofty goal. The Bible gives us instructions on how we're supposed to live with one another. It doesn't just leave it to ourselves. To Good luck. Hopefully you'll figure out how to get along. No, the Word of God provides uh, instructions and, and uh, kind of foundations and right thinking. It tells us how we ought to live with one another. It provides ground rules and even warnings. Cautions us of the landmines that we can step on that end up hurting and even destroying relationships. The New Testament is filled with passages that we can call the one another's, the commands to do these things to and with one another. Jesus gives a command in John 13, a new commandment he gives to the disciples to love one another, and in so doing, loving one another, caring for one another, we are to show the world around us that we are in fact Christians. It was our intent to walk through some New Testament passages that specifically give us these kinds of instructions, and today we're going to begin in Romans chapter 12. As a church that we find as a pillar, uh, expository preaching, that's just preaching from the Word of God, one verse after the next, and just expositing, explaining what it says and applying it to our lives. That's what we're going to do even in this topic, one another. We're going to go in Romans 12 today, we're going to start there, and we're only going to be in verses 3 through 8 this week. We'll pick up where we left off next week, and I hope this will be a great service to you. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 12. I will read verses 3 through 8 out loud, pray, and then we'll uh, go back through and unpack it a bit at a time. Let's read. For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness." Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and because of our love for you, we inevitably and necessarily love your church. We pray that you would teach us how to love our church well, how to honor what you've commanded for us to do with one another. Help us to be eager to serve and to care for and to consider well the church that you blessed us with. We ask for you to serve us well in your word, Lord. We ask you to, to do what you have designed this word to do, to impress upon our hearts, to, to live with one another in a way that honors you and thinks rightly of ourselves and serves the church around us. So, Lord, do that work. Send your spirit, I ask, as we go through this this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. 
Romans is an amazing book. This is actually a wonderful exposition given to us by the Apostle Paul. One of the reasons that it is so loved, especially, I think, by Westerners, is because Paul is writing Romans in a very Western mindset. Now, there are other parts of the New Testament that this could be said to be true, but much of the Bible, Old Testament, is written in Hebrew. And other parts of the New Testament are written with Jews, Hebrews, Eastern thinkers in mind. And while all of those passages are equally true, equally applicable, sometimes as Christians in the West read through Romans, we are especially pleased with how it is laid out in a very empirical and rational way. From Romans 1 all the way through to the point that we are right now, Paul lays out a very helpful understanding of giant doctrines of the faith. And he does so with great scriptural support of the Old Testament and applies to our lives right now. These things were true back in the days he wrote these to the Romans, as they are today. And as is common in Paul's letters, he begins with large discourses of doctrine. This is what you should believe and why. And then moves into, and this is what you ought to do because of these beliefs. Here, we see Paul turn his attention from just telling us of doctrine to applying it to our lives. And by the time we get to Romans 12, he's turning that corner. This is some remarkably applicable instruction here. We're going to start in verse 3, as we just read out loud. Follow this with me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned now he starts this section right here with, for by the grace given to me, we're going to cover that in just a minute, we'll revisit that language in a couple of verses, so just put a bookmark in that one for now. But he tells us to be warned from something. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And the reason this warning is, give, this, this warning is given is quite evident, because we need to be warned from thinking too highly of ourselves. There's a single word for that that the Bible gives. Pride. Pride. Paul here in this exposition warns us of the sin and the error of pride, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. I think this is, this is why I thought this would be helpful to start here. I actually asked the elders, what, what passage would you think could be uh, really helpful to begin with in talking about the one another's, and, and several of them pointed, you know, Romans 12, what a great start, and it kicks off, don't think wrongly about yourself, before we even get into how to relate to others. You see, pride is a major error, it is no small thing. In fact, the Bible tells us on repeat that God hates pride, He abhors the pride of Jacob, it even says in the Old Testament. The New Testament repeats this language in James chapter 4, verse 6, kind of pulls on Proverbs 3, it says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I thought it interesting, I didn't know the dates we'd land on when we started preaching on this, but here we are in June, and we're warning the church from God's Word of pride. I don't know about you, but everywhere I go in my neighborhood right now in this month, we see the gay pride flags all over the place. And in the past here at the church, we've noted that the LGBTQ movement has chosen the word pride as their battle cry, and that is quite fitting. 
because it is a movement that stands in direct opposition to God. And so its battle cry, likewise, is the same. And this is why Christians ought never, ever, 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 never, ever, 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 ever fly gay pride flags. Ever. Because it is a celebration of what God hates, and it is openly approving of what is destroying our neighbors. God is an enemy of pride. He opposes pride. And because of this, if we have any love in our hearts at all for our gay neighbors, we must not in any way encourage their pride. Modern Christians have a hard time understanding this, so I try to use this explanation. God loves even the homosexual neighbors you have, but you don't need to celebrate their wickedness with a flag any more than you should fly a swastika outside your home because God also loves Nazis. We do not get on board with this because pride is just that damning. I want to quote from you from C.S. Lewis in his masterpiece, Mere Christianity. He writes this, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Strong words from our brother C.S. Lewis and ones with which I entirely agree. I want you to notice here, this is not just the kind of thing that, hey, there are three or four of you that really need to hear this part of Paul's Warning, this, this part of the sermon is for you few prideful. No, 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 no. Look at the words he uses here. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought. Everyone among you. This is a universal issue. It's a danger to us all. Some think that they're cured of this error or not vulnerable to it at all because they think that they consider themselves very poorly. Well, I don't think very highly of myself. I think too poorly of myself, and so therefore, this must be for my husband or my neighbor. No. There is a ditch on the other side of this road as well. Modern psychology is creatively branded, rebranded, thinking highly of oneself under another name, self-esteem. A definition here I found online for self-esteem is this, confidence in one's own worth or abilities. Now, the modern mind hears that language and goes, why is that bad? Well, confidence is exactly that confide, with faith, having faith in one's own worth, in one's own abilities. And the world often tells people that they need to think better of themselves. The problem is that you think too little. You need to think better of yourself. In fact, lack of self-esteem in worldly language is considered a major social problem. But the Bible warns against this kind of thinking. Self-esteem is merely pride in hiding. Now, granted, granted, you aren't supposed to find your worth chiefly in what others think about you. That that, that much is true. And so if anyone gets any good out of the whole self-esteem-ism that's in modern behaviorism, that might be one good. You ought not Take your worth from what you perceive from others. That much is true. But the solution to that error is not then finding worth in yourself. 
value in yourself, making sure that you think higher of yourself, but in finding your worth in what Christ says about you. Not in the world's subjective view or in your own subjective view of yourself, but in the objective view of God. What does He say about me? That is where we are to find our comfort. That is where we are to find our worth. And that's why self-esteem is a lie that will never make good on its promise. It's actually one of the devil's tricks. Because the person who's plagued by thinking too poorly of himself is likewise plagued with thinking too much about himself. It's just a quantity versus quality question. The word here is actually kind of helpful to thinking about this idea. Uh, Not to think of himself more highly. Think of himself more highly. That's just one word in Greek. Hooperphroneo, hooperphroneo, and it's, just, it's two words kind of merged together. Hyper, hyper, which is excessive or overabundant. And phroneo, which is the Greek word for to think. So to overexcessively think of oneself. To think abundantly about oneself. That's what the word is actually referring to here. You could, you could just quickly replace that language with overthinker. You see, the one who thinks too highly of himself considers himself constantly and is pleased. He stares into the mirror all day and says, how wonderful. But the one who thinks too lowly of himself likewise considers himself constantly yet is displeased. He stares into the mirror all day and says, how awful. You see, both need to be warned with this same warning. The problem is you're standing in front of the mirror all day. Whether you do so with a smile or a frown is not relevant. The point is, remove the mirror and look instead to Christ. Low self-esteem, then, is just a false humility. It's not a correction for the other kind of overt pride. It's a counterfeit. And even if the one doing it doesn't realize that you are giving yourself more attention than you deserve. Our brother C.S. Lewis went on in that same chapter of Mere Christianity to say the same thing. He said it like this. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. This would be meaningless and useless to us unless it agreed with the Word of God, which I think it does. Colossians 3, verse 2 says it like this. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So to the person who thinks too much, or over here, too much in time, too much in quality, or too much in quantity about themselves, both of those people need to be warned of the error and instead fixate their mind on Christ. What fills your mind? Is it how worthy you are, how unworthy you are, or is it Christ All this to say, and the reason I'm making a point of this is because I want you to see the warning that Paul gives here is for all of us. It's for everybody. It's not one of those elbow-nudging moments, right, when you hear this kind of correction. This is a, oh, goodness. Yeah, I need to not think more of myself than I should. And it is a fundamental concern for the health of our relationships, and especially so in the church, where we should be aligning to and sanctified in The humility of Christ. Paul echoes this same exact idea elsewhere. He says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. An Old Testament version of this might be found in Proverbs 26. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes, 
There's more hope for a fool than for him. We ought not think too highly of ourselves. In the New Testament, James actually makes the same connection in his letter. He writes this in James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He goes on to make it clear he's talking about the prideful passions that we would deserve something better than somebody else around us. He's dealt with that already in chapter 2 of James. He's doing it again in chapter 4. He even quotes Proverbs 3 by saying that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in that same section, he concludes the, the, the paragraph by saying, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So if you didn't follow that, James sees that the problem is pride. What causes the quarrels among you? Ultimately, at root, it is your pride. The passions in your life that you think that you deserve more than someone else, thinking that we deserve our way over our fellow Christian. And the antidote to strife between brothers then, as he says here, is humility. Humility. Think rightly of yourself. Pride is at the root of conflict between people and certainly is so in the church pride is like poison in the communal watering hole when there is conflict in the community pride is at work you know i've seen many things but one thing i've never seen is two humble people fighting it doesn't work when pride is robbed from a situation you watch peace flourish because pride is essentially competitive. Competitive. In this way, it's unlike all the other sins. It feeds off of comparison between self and others. You know, my kids often want the best of something. And I, my wife and I are kind of in a new season currently, trying to help shepherd them through a, the wrong thinking. Uh, and and we've, we've been realizing at root, that's what it is. It's pride. It's thinking too highly of self. So when one kid wants the best seat in the car... Well, why do you deserve that more than your brother or sister? Why do you think that you should have what's best? When one kid wants the bigger slice of pie, it's, it's, it's funny almost watching my, the little kid version of this when they're all seated around the table and I see them start to vie for the bigger piece of the dessert, okay? Because we have dessert after every single meal in the Sanford household because Jesus would want it that way. It's wonderful in our house. So whenever we have dessert and the kids get it all around, they're ready to have theirs and stuff, I see a couple of them start to bicker and fight over, no, no, I want that piece. I pause and go, stop. Do you think that piece is better? And because they know where I'm going, they always go, uh, no. <laughs> because they know where we're about to go. They know what dad's about to grandstand on all over again. Guys, why do you think you deserve the better piece than your sister? Why should she not get something better than you? You see, what's at, what's at work in that greedy little sin? What's underneath and fueling the greed for the better thing is pride. Well, I deserve it more than him or her. I should have it, not them. Guys, that's just the kid version of what you and I do all the time as adults and just a more mature, carefully uh, manipulated way. Less overt, not quite as obvious, and yet we are plagued with the same thing. We think more highly, and so it introduces conflict into all that's around us. And this happens in all relationships. And for the record, this happens in all relationships with all people, not just believers. This happens under, under the sun. All of humanity is plagued with this. 
But of all the people in the world, Christians genuinely, more than anyone, have no excuse. We have no excuse to operate with pride in our hearts in the way that we deal with one another. Why? Because a starting point to the gospel, to being a believer, is acknowledging and admitting that I am a sinner. I am not worthy. I am undeserving. That if I got what I deserved, it wouldn't be the bigger slice of pie. If I got what I deserved, there would be punishment. The wrath of God poured out on me for my sinfulness. You see, to be a believer, that's what we have to acknowledge. And if you're not a believer today, you're checking out a church, you're hearing this on a recording at some point, and you're wondering, what is it about these Christian people that, 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 that they believe? You have to know this. All of us have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. God has made man upright, but they have devised many schemes. Even all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. You and I deserve the just judgment of God. And the judgment of God, the wages of sin is death separation from him in eternity in hell, what Jesus calls the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what we deserve. How many of us? All of us. Every single one of us ever born on this earth deserve hell for forever. And that's the starting point of the gospel for us. And if we know that that's true, how can we then think with prideful thinking that we deserve more or better than the brother or sister around us? There is only one who has ever not deserved that outcome, not deserved that wrath, not deserved that penalty, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, sent to earth, lived perfectly in every moment, even in the thoughts of his mind, never once sinned, and yet of all of humanity, being the only one perfect, was mocked, tortured, spat upon, and put upon the cross. Why? To bear the penalty due to you and me for our sins. And the way that you can have that penalty poured out there applied to your life so that you can be free from your sin, forgiven of your sins, is by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the call. If you're not a believer today, that's what we mean. You need to repent of your sins. You need to turn away from your pride, your hope in anything else. Well, I'm not that bad. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm not as bad as the other guy. No, no, no. You're worse than you think that you are. And if you've committed one sin, you're already deserving of God's punishment. You need to repent of those sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. It is your only hope. And if you do that, just as Jesus died and was buried and then was raised to new life on the third day, you too can have eternal life with Christ. It is your only hope. And if you're not a believer today, we appeal to you on this. Repent of your sins. Turn in faith to Jesus. Talk to somebody today. Don't leave until you chat with somebody about what the gospel is. And as believers, we're to remind each other First in our own life, in our own hearts daily. I, I, I'm a sinner. The flesh is still part of me. I'm still here on this earth today. I still sin daily. I still make wrong decisions. I still think too highly of myself and enter into conflict with brothers and sisters. And the word of God bears witness to this. We have no excuse. We must look at it and say, Lord, help me. Help me die to self. Help, let me live as a crucified man. For I have been crucified in Christ and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. We should say that as the Apostle Paul did. And Paul provides instructions for what we should do in the Christian life. And he does that right here as well. He doesn't just say, stop thinking highly of yourself and then move on to another thought. Look what he says next. But think with sober judgment. That's what you should do. Don't think too highly. Think with sober judgment. What's sober judgment? It's, it's sound, sensible, moderate evaluation of oneself. That's what it is. That's sober judgment. 
right? You think, think of what's not sober. Think of drunkenness. If you think of that language, right? The drunken thinking is foolish thinking. It's not correct. It's not accurate. It doesn't perceive correctly. Soberness, on the other hand, is right and adequate. It rightly evaluates the self. It takes effort. It takes practice. It takes daily submitting ourselves to the Word to seeing who we really are. Let this be your mirror. And it also takes honest help from wise brothers and sisters. I wonder if you've heard of the the Dunning and Kruger effect. I was researching this this last week in preparation for this sermon. I thought it'd be a helpful illustration. Towards the end of the 90s, there were a pair of psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, who did some tests on a handful of college students, the most humble amongst us, to be sure. And uh, what they found out is that once a little bit of, uh, of learning had taken place in a particular area, the new learner got overconfident super fast, so much, in fact, that they thought with much greater confidence than their actual competence level was. So they thought they knew way more than they did. And so this is how it would play out. A person would learn a little bit of something on a subject, they'd be excited about the learning, and immediately think of themselves as genuinely an expert. And all the others around them would see their confidence and go like, well, they clearly know what they're talking about, right? But the effect found that if a person continued down that path of learning, they got to chapter 2, and then chapter 3, and then 4, they'd start to realize just how little they actually know about that subject. And their confidence went down. Get it? Confidence was high when they knew very little. In fact, many have referred to that in the Dunning-Kruger effect as the mount of stupidity, which leads then to the valley of despair. Ten years later, I barely know anything about this, even though ten more years of learning. Why does that work out the way that it did? Because we have a tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. A similar analysis was done on Americans. We have a, a special hubris in the world, I think, probably. And it's funny because uh, if you, uh, they did some tests on Americans of how well they rated their driving ability and found that 93% of Americans think that they are above average drivers. 93, that's not 55, 93% of Americans polled thought that they were better than the average driver. How outsized is that view, right? Here's the truth. Most of you are average drivers. A good handful of you are really bad drivers. And a few of you are better than the rest. But we tend to think of ourselves so much better than we are, even in those categories, that, 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 that are far less meaningful, right? But it is helpful for us to be reminded that that's the natural thinking. The natural thinking is going to think too much of self, and most likely in a qualitative way. It's a part of our flesh, We need to know this. The first lie ever told in the Bible, the sin that entered into the garden, Eve believed that she deserved to be like God. Yeah, yeah, I should be like God. And she was deceived. And Adam went along with it. Why? Because we naturally are prone to soaking in pride and wanting more and better for ourselves. You need to know this, because if you know this, and if you really acknowledge it in your life and go, Lord, I'm going to have a tendency towards this, then you can anticipate it, and perhaps prevent it, or at least mitigate it. And your fellow brothers and sisters can be extraordinary allies in this war. You see, they may and almost certainly do see things in you that you don't see. 
good and bad. We do a lot of a premarital counseling and then marriage counseling, and it's very typical. Before a person gets married, they both just kind of get all the positives from each other, majority of the positives, and after they get married, all of a sudden those little cutesy things that were kind of annoying then are really annoying now. Oh, I thought those were going to go away. No, it doesn't work that way. And so conflict arises in the marriage because all of a sudden we start to see the differences in each other and think we deserve for those differences in that person to be gone. I should not have to put up with a wife who does this. Come on, me. I don't deserve that. And that's the way that oftentimes our fights go about. We don't say those words, but that's oftentimes what's at play. I got in a, a series of arguments with my wife uh, about, a, about a year or so, or so ago. Um, I had been coming home from work, super tired, arriving back at home. And uh, when I got to the table, it was really obvious, and I'm sure you'll all agree with me, I just needed to relax and enjoy dinner. And she should keep the parenting thing up, right? Like disciplining, I shouldn't have to do that, right? Because I'd been working all day. I come home, can you please just let me eat? And if there's an issue or a diaper to be changed, just do that. And I couldn't understand why she was so sinful. And so it was just such a problem that she would not think that I deserved that. And I say that in part in jest, but it was actually serious heart work because as I inspected that and brought that to brothers that I trust and talking about the deals and just what's going on, I realized that I was thinking that I deserved a peaceful meal more than my wife, who's been dealing with the kids all day long. And the Lord's good kindness, he rebuked me and made me realize, goodness, that actually is a pride thing. I think I deserve more or better than her at this moment. And the Lord's been working on that. And now I can say I'm finally pride-free. It's so wonderful. I, <laughs> the most humble guy that I know, you should try it. It's so great. No, I can't even joke. The, the Lord is so good to expose these things gently and kindly and through often other people. Brothers and sisters that we trust, you need people in your life who will give you a right assessment of yourself, who love you enough to care more about you than what you think about them. You know, one of, one of the TV shows that I remember watching back in the early 2000s, I don't know if you remember seeing the American Idol shows. You guys remember any of those shows uh, where the, the singer would, would come out and uh, try to become the next big voice in, 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 the, uh, in the singing world. And they'd stand before a panel of judges who were experts, and they'd all achieved uh, massive amounts of, of wealth and popularity by their profession. They worked in the singing industry. And a person would stand there before the judges, and they would belt out a cappella, no music, a company. They'd start singing just to show the, the ability of their voice, and the judges would judge them, and Eventually, one person would go on to, to win. That's how it worked. And one of the most fascinating things about that show was that occasionally a person would come on up and they'd start singing, and their voice was objectively awful. And if you've even heard of these shows, you, bet you know what I'm talking about. Just terrible, like, oh my goodness, how in the world did that person think that their voice was objectively good enough to be on public television for the world to see? They thought they were actually going to be the next big voice. Well, this is at play, right? Right? They thought, surely my, my voice is good enough for this. But there was another thing at play. Because oftentimes after the judges berated them and you know, belittled them and us part of the show, the person would walk off the stage with tears in their eyes and they go backstage to their family waiting. Did you make it? Surprised. And they go, no, they said I'm terrible. 
I remember on repeat watching this and going, what is going on here? The family's saying, those judges don't know what they're talking about. Uh, yeah, they do. They're professionals. They've made it. They know what they're talking about. You have a wonderful voice. No, they don't. What are you doing? You and I need honest assessments. And, and the thing is, if a person's worth and value and high thinking of themselves is wrapped up into, I'm a singer, well... Those around them think that they're doing a loving and kind thing by telling them they're good at that. You see, all of this comes back down to not thinking too highly of yourself. You think wrongly. If you're thinking through the wrong lens, if you're not realizing, you need to find all that worth in what Christ says. Look to him. I'll let you tell me whatever's true about me. I'm not going to believe it for myself, either in my own introspective, quiet, meditative time, or what I hear from other people. I don't care what they say. Whatever you say about me is what is true. That's what we need, and we need those in our lives who are going to challenge us to that, those who would never let your terrible singing voice on a public show. We are not all made equally skilled and gifted in all areas. Look what he says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's the, that's the point. There. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God measures out this faith. This is not saving faith. This is not some people are more saved than others. It's not that kind. It's the faith that is operating as we fulfill our God-given functions in the church. That's exactly where he's going to get to right away. To execute on the gifts that he's given us, that kind of faith. God gifts each of us differently. He's measured it out, different category gifts, and different amounts in those gifts. And he does so that we may serve others in the church. This is why thinking too highly of oneself does damage to the church. It prevents us from seeing how God made us and how we're to use our unique skills to serve one another. And that's what he goes on to say next. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. This is awesome. If you've been with us during our When You Come Together series, I preached through 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, and uh, we'll hit a couple parts of that here, but he used the same metaphor there. And it's a very obvious metaphor. It's a wonderfully helpful one. It's Holy Spirit inspired, of course. But it's so easy to get our, our minds around. Verse 4 is talking about the physical body of a person. Look at me, my physical body. For as one body, we have many members, all the different parts. And the members do not all have the same function. Eye is not an ear, ear is not a foot, so on. So that's really easy for us to get in our minds. That's the illustration, the physical body. In verse 5, he compares that to the church. So we, church, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. It's pretty simple, isn't it? The illustration is very clear. You're not all exactly the same. You can be equally saved by the grace of God, but the function that you will perform in the church, the skills, the abilities, the spiritual gifts given are going to be different than the brother or sister next to you. And those are designed to complement one another as we serve the church. Verses 6 through 8 continue and how we should employ them. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And real quick, I'd ask you to bookmark where Paul said that he was operating out of the grace that was given to him, and he's now writing this for us. Paul is literally modeling what he's telling us to do right here. God 
has given me the gracious gift. He's graciously given to me the gift of writing this down so that you can be encouraged to these things. He's literally in the act, as we're reading this, in the act of modeling using his God-given gifts for our benefit. And he tells us, let us use them. Whatever gift you have, whatever skill set, ability, spiritually granted by the Lord, put them to use, maximize them, leverage them for the good, for the benefit of the church. And now he's going to give a list of seven different gifts. Again, when I was in 1 Corinthians, I, made it, uh, I tried to make this clear that I think we see several different lists of gifts in the New Testament. I don't think any of them are to be taken by themselves exhaustively. They're all different lists. It's, a, it's kind of a sample list of the kinds of gifts that the church might be given in order to uh, serve one another. And that's what we see here. And if you have the gift, put it to work. That's what he's going to do. So let's just quickly look through this list together. First thing he mentions is prophecy. Prophecy. If prophecy, in other words, if the gift given to you is the gift of prophecy, then let us use them in proportion to our faith, those who are given this particular gift. Now, you can go back through that First Corinthians series to see that I spent weeks making the argument that the term prophecy here, which just simply means speaking forth, is meaning preaching. That's, that's what's in Paul's mind. Every time he describes what he means by prophecy, he's not saying future telling, okay? He's talking about exhortation. He's talking about scripture-handled gospel proclamation, truth of God being proclaimed to others with the hope that there will be change taking place. And that's why we see it's in proportion to our faith. Because preaching the gospel of Jesus is an act of faith. And that's what distinguishes it from teaching. Teaching means to impart information. Preaching wants to have the heart changed. Something happened as a result. And it must be operated under faith. When I stand here and preach before you, I offer nothing but interesting tidbits and factoids unless the Spirit of God embeds those things into your heart. And so... To preach is to trust that God is going to take these words of truth and put them into your heart and actually apply them. I, I, I get the great privilege of watching some of this practically play out. It's, it's not uncommon at all. And as I talk to other pastors, they confirm they've had the same experiences. That I'd preach a sermon that I'm like, oh, that was awful. That was just a terrible sermon. I just, I just didn't feel like I executed well. I think what I said was true, but I'm just not really sure that it was super helpful for anyone today. And how many times that after those feelings heard from somebody, that was, that was the most helpful sermon I've heard all year. I, I needed that exact one right now. And you go, well, I was terrible, so that had to be the Holy Spirit. It's in proportion with our faith. That's what's being utilized in that. You know, you know what I think of when I think of prophecy and the gift of prophecy? The first person that came to mind was Bradley Pastor Bradley, he's my younger disciple of mine, young, younger brother in faith who I get to now share and pastor it with here. Every time that guy opens his mouth, he's, he says something preachy. He, just, he proclaims the gospel and wants change in the heart for people. And, and you know what that brother has? He's got faith. He's got faith. He and I get to spend lots of time together and I get to hear all kinds of crazy things of his life. You know one thing I've never heard from Bradley? The doubts of the trust of God. In other words, I've never ever heard Bradley go, you know, I just, I'm just not so sure all this is true. I'm not really sure God's going to do what he said. 
Never. That's what makes him such a good preacher, such a good prophet in that use of the word, because he's got great faith. He really believes when he's preaching that God is going to do what God wants to do with it. And it's an awesome thing to watch that gift grow and develop. So I'm so grateful for that brother Bradley and the good gifts that God has given our church through him. Service is the next one that shows up. If service. If you've been given the gift of service, then let, let us use them. Use that gift in our serving. Draw upon the spiritual gift of service that God has uniquely given to you in order to serve. Now, service, of course, is helping others. And all of us can and must serve one another just as Jesus did his disciples. So there's certainly a way in which service should abound from all believers. But there are some who are especially gifted to come along others and help them maximize their spiritual gifts. That's serving. That's a gift of serving. That is a, let me come along and help you do what you have been gifted to do. I will come along and help. That's the act of service, the gift of service here. It's equipping, empowering others to use their gifts well. Let me take this off your plate so you can do that. I just want to serve. You tell me what it is you need. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing what it is I think you might need so that you can be freed up to go do the thing you're supposed to do. The word for service here is deacon. Same word. That's exactly what the first deacons did. The apostles were supposed to be the ministers of the word and prayer, and they came in to serve. We, we'll take care of these things so that they can continue to do their work. When I think of a servant, somebody with the gift of service, the first person that pops to my mind is my wife, Laura. She was late to church today for one reason, because I called her and she was halfway here because I forgot my preaching iPad, and I was like, baby... Will you go back and get it for me? And she didn't even think about it. She just went back and got it. My wife serves day in and day out, not just for me personally and my family, but honestly, I don't know that there has been one good blessing that God has given to our church in which he has not also used the servanthood of my wife to bless us. It's in, it's in many and most ways you'll never even know. And that, that's the kind of person who has the gift of service. I think that's, the, that, that's what happens. It's oftentimes not noticed by others. They're doing the things behind the scenes so that others can do what is oftentimes more seen and observed. I'm so grateful for my wife and the gift that she is on our church. He then brings up the one who teaches. The one who teaches in his teaching. Let, let him use the spiritual gift of teaching as he teaches. This is the ability to understand and distill information and then communicate it to others in a way that they can understand. This is not exactly the same as preaching, although there's certainly overlap there. Teaching is imparting information. I want you to understand these points. I want you to get this into your mind. Have you ever been at a uh, small group or a Bible study and you study a hard passage and everyone kind of takes their shot trying to explain it and then one person goes, well, maybe it's, and then gives an answer and everyone goes, oh, yeah, right? maybe you're watching the gift of teaching on display. I get the great benefit to, to be around a handful of brothers and sisters at our church who have this gift of teaching. It comes to my mind as a brother Luke. You guys don't know Pastor Luke. That brother is brilliant. Like, he makes you feel dumb, even if you're smart when you're standing next to Luke. That's why I don't let him stand next to me that often, because <laughs> Luke, is, Luke, Luke has written on more topics than I've ever studied <laughs> And so it's very common that I'll call him up when I'm doing a sermon. I'll be like, brother, I, I, need, I need your thoughts on this. And he'll give me all these helpful things. And one of the ways that I, I really think that we can identify, he's got a specific spiritual gift of teaching, is because he's able to make difficult concepts understandable. 
He can take this really hard to understand things and just kind of says it in a little Luke-ism. You guys have gotten lots of Luke-isms on Sunday mornings without even knowing it. And he doesn't even care about credit. He's a good brother. We are so blessed to have teachers like Luke in our midst. It says here, the one who exhorts. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. That's the one who offers much-needed words at just the right time. Words of encouragement to lift up and words of admonishment and rebuke. Exhortation can have both of those connotations embedded in there. If you guys have not met Brother Jim, if you've not met, I mean, sometimes he just goes by encourager Jim. If you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about, encourager Jim, usually first service. Uh, this brother just is constantly encouraging. He's the one who once every couple of weeks will on random, random to me, not random before the Spirit of God, will just give a call and I'm like, oh, what does Jim need? Nothing. He needs nothing. He is just calling to encourage me. Brother, I don't want you to know, preacher, you're, you're preaching the gospel. You just keep doing that. Just share the gospel. Don't, don't worry about anything. Just do it. We love you. Okay, Jim, what can I do for you? Nothing. Just keep preaching. Oh, I love you too, encourager Jim. Man, you need encouragers like that in your life. You need people who know what to say. I think of Sister Karen Setti, runs the counseling ministry here at our church. She's, she's wonderful. She knows exactly how to encourage where it needs to be encouraged, and then go, oh, let me gently correct this thinking. I need, you, need, you need some admonishment here. You need some rebuke here. She's just a wonderful sister. Guys, we are surrounded by people who have been given the gift of exhortation, and they're putting it into practice. And so we are a church that gets that wonderful gift from God through them. It says here, the one who contributes in generosity. Now, we're all supposed to contribute things. In fact, the entire list here is telling us to contribute our giftings, right? So I don't think contribute here means that kind of just, you know, serve. This kind of contribute means material possession, material things, resources that have to be given. In fact, most of the time, the word contribute here, that exact same Greek word is used in the New Testament. It's talking about something physically provided. That's the idea. There are some who are specially equipped by God to be givers, uniquely situated to have finances at their, at, at their, uh, their, uh, their fingertips or networking abilities and all kinds of material things that there are needs for in the church. And God has gifted the church through people like that. In fact, when I've been in this whole building search this last couple of years and they've done the math 100 different times about this and been like, how in the world do churches, smaller churches, afford buildings? like millions of dollars in smaller churches. How do, you, how do they do this? It doesn't make money sense when you do the math on it. And I've asked pastors that I've known through large networks, and I continually get from all these pastors the same response. A whole bunch of our faithful people put in, and a couple gives some giant gifts, and we get the building. It like almost always happens like that. It's incredible, and it's wonderful. God gifts churches, individual local bodies, with those who can contribute. And how are they to contribute? Generously. In generosity. What a joy it is when somebody gives in that way. If you've been put in the position to give, then give big with an attitude of willingness and generosity. It's wonderful when that takes place. We've been recipients of that benefit at our church since before we planted by people who said, listen, Rich, uh, my wife and I are probably never going to go to the mission field. I don't think God's built us for that. I don't think we're supposed to move and live in Utah, but we want to make sure that you're going to want for nothing and getting out there and planting a church. The mission church exists today because of God's provision through contributors in generosity. It's a wonderful gift. The one who leads, leads. 
How should they lead? With zeal. We are all to follow Christ. All of us are to follow the ultimate leader, Jesus. But some in his church, he's uniquely gifted with leadership. One who has been gifted with decisiveness, the ability to guide others, the natural one that those in a circle look to, like to make the decisions or to solve the disputes or to settle uh, the issue at hand. The ones who take initiative and make hard decisions for the benefit of others. And and brothers and sisters together who have to do these in their respective circles. And they do so, and they're supposed to do so with zeal. That means with diligence. Like, want to do it. Okay, I'll help you out of this situation again. No, lead, lead. Own that responsibility. The Lord has made you to do that. Not haphazardly. Not carelessly. If you're a leader amongst your brothers and sisters, own that. Own that. See, you're a person of influence in your circle and leverage it, maximize it for the good of the church around you. Not for yourself, glorification, but to help and serve others in that. I think of my brother Lee. If you guys know Lee, he's, he's just a natural leader about him. People, people look to Lee when a decision has to be made. They ask him. He, he's, a good, he's good at like looking at situations that need to be dealt with and discerning all the potential variables and then considering the parties involved and he's decisive. We should go do this. He's a wonderful brother, and he, he leverages that, and we're all blessed when he does that kind of thing. So grateful for the gift the Lord has given our church and a brother like Lee. I've said many times before that if you're in a small group or a Bible study, somebody's the leader. Somebody's the leader, really. And to pretend like there's no leader is oftentimes not super helpful in that group. To identify, hey, you be the tiebreaker, you be the one who makes the final decision, is oftentimes very helpful to do. And especially... Uh, blessed if that person's actually been given the spiritual gift of leadership. Utilize that. Next is the one who does acts of mercy. And this is the last on the list. The one who does acts of mercy. To do that, how? With cheerfulness. This is the person uniquely gifted to offer compassion, sympathy for those who so desperately need it. Those who have a special sense of another's heart needs. Not hesitance. No lack of enthusiasm. They do so with cheerfulness. I think of our sister Kelly Martinson, who stands on, the, on, on the, the, the sidewalks in front of abortion mills all week long with her husband who's proclaiming the gospel, and they have an army of volunteers that help serve in a variety of ways. And she's just so quickly is compassionate and sympathetic, and she just knows exactly how to show love to these young women who are walking into the abortion mill, just going to, about to do something terrible, and she knows how to intervene and just be loving to them and kind and, and actually follow through with helping and serving and caring. And she doesn't do so with, one more mom and baby saved, I've got to manage now. If you guys don't know Kelly, my goodness. Watch that act of mercy at work and praise God for it. She's eager to care for the needs of the hurting. I have no qualm celebrating individual people by name that God has gifted our church. We have a precedent set in the Bible. The Apostle Paul calls out individuals by name you and I will never meet and tells people, don't forget to thank this person. Look up to this one, admire this one, tell this one I'm thankful. Why? Because they are a gift from God to the church. The problem is when praise stops at men. This is why we don't just thank the person. We thank God for the gift of the person. That is how. We are to think about those in our lives that the Lord has blessed us with. Our good and kind King Jesus has graciously provided this church, the mission church, with many exceptionally gifted brothers and sisters. And we have everything we need here. We really do. 
We praise God for that. And as more needs arise, we are confident that the Lord will provide for those needs among his saints. So let us remember, though, what this gift follows. Don't think too highly of yourself. Instead, use your gifts, leverage them, maximize them for the service of the body of Christ. And you need to be warned, the world will war against you in this kind of thinking. I found this interesting. This has been in my mind for a while. I researched this to to check it out. You can trace the cultural shift towards self-esteem, behaviorism, you-first, me-centered kind of thinking, selfishness, propping that up, pride, fueling that. You can trace this in culture by simply looking at armed service recruiting campaigns. My grandparents were recruited into the military with appeals to patriotism, justice, your nation needs you, right? My generation, on the other hand, was recruited into the military with, be all that you can be. You're an army of one. You remember these commercials and posters? Why? Because they knew that the only way to get to the new culture is to tell them how wonderful they are. You are the center of the universe. You need this to better yourself. This is about you. It's not about you might need to die for the country. You might need to bleed for justice. No, this is a, you're so great. Guys, this is all over our world, and our gospel competes against this all the time, and your flesh hears the lies all the time, and you need to push back against those things. Remember this. Look at this list of gifts and why it's given. Your gifts are not for you. Your skills and abilities are not primarily to satisfy your self-esteem. They're to be employed in the service of Christ's church. In that that sense, your gifts don't belong just to you. And there is great joy in using them for the service of the church. I want to summarize, I just want to conclude with with those points that we just made. And I want to kind of add one in here. Number one, be humble. Be humble. Don't compare yourself to others. Don't try to internalize, meditate, and think how great you are. Make yourself think better of yourself. No, be humble. Pursue humility. Charles Spurgeon said, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. What a great, great help language there. We are to compare ourselves to Christ and be humbled and not to others or a view of what ourselves should be. Look to him. Let the Lord tell us what we should think. Be humble in this way. Second, you need a tight crew. You need a unit of trusted brothers or sisters that you get around you in your life. Ladies, get some trusted women around you. Men, get some trusted brothers around you. And you do battle together. Confess sins, okay? Admonish one another. Share each other's struggles and weaknesses. Even the potential struggles, the ones that ah, might be weak in this area. Watch out for one another in love and gentleness, but actually step into each other's lives and care for one another. In fact, ask them to help you identify strengths that you have and weaknesses. This is a very practical go and do, okay? The next time you get together with the group, if you have this yet formed, ask them these questions. What do you think are my great spiritual strengths? And what do you think are my weaknesses? The strengths part's easy to ask. The weakness one is not always easy to hear. But that's one of the chief differences between an, okay, small group, and a life-changing one. And if anyone's ever been a part of one of those life-changing small group gatherings, accountability groups, life group, whatever you call them, 
a, a, a group of believers together that actually deal with these kinds of things, you know that the difference there is not just that you have more affinities that you enjoy in common, but when you share your sins, when they're willing to confront you on weakness, that is where the rubber meets the road. That's where iron really sharpens iron and the sparks fly. And lastly, serve the church. Serve the church. That's exactly what he's saying. That's a huge deal. Put your gifts to work serving Christ's body. Your gifts might not be what you think they are, and so you are going to need that tight crew around you to help identify and to tell you, hey, 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 uh, don't do that again. That's not your thing. But good, check that off the list. Let's move to the next thing and see if that's it. You need people in your life that are going to help you do that so that you can enjoy the great pleasure of glorifying God, of of worshiping God as as an act of worship, laying down our bodies before Him as we serve the church. And I hope all these things can be encouraging from Romans 12. Be humble, find that tight crew to challenge you, and actively serve the church with the gifts God's given you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love your word. We need help to employ these things, and I ask that you would help uh, this not just be words and factoids being learned, but that your Holy Spirit would embed these truths from your word into the hearts of my brothers and sisters. Any error, Lord, I pray, would just be wafted away like the chaff, and any truth would embed itself deeply and serve us well. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to share communion together this morning. And you are invited to come forward if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to be a member here at the church, but if you believe in Christ alone for your salvation, that is, there are no additional works required, there's no additional deeds of righteousness that need to be accomplished by you in order to have uh, the gift of eternal life, but you believe that your only hope, your only hope is Christ and His atoning work on the cross, then you are a, a member of Christ's universal body and you are welcome to come and partake of the elements this morning. If you're not a believer today, you're not sure what you think about all these things, you're, you're maybe kind of caught up on a couple parts, then this is a proclamation of what you believe. So just go ahead and let it pass and uh, just wait your, wait your time and we would love to invite you to the table uh, once you've understood the gospel and embraced it and become a brother and sister in Christ. I'm gonna go ahead and pray one more time to open up communion. You can come down and grab the elements, uh, double stack cup, uh, bring them back to your seats, and we'll partake of those elements together. Lord, we, we hope that we honor you in taking communion every week as we gather. We want to do this often as we meet in remembrance of Christ's body and blood. And so, Father, as we lift up these symbols of Christ's broken body and his shed blood for us, I pray that they would be what they were expected to be, a proclamation of his death until he returns. So, Father, please let this be that. And help us to not be prideful ever in this moment, that we are the special ones who get the sanctifying work of Jesus, the salvation offered, but we are the broken ones, that it is our sin that placed him on the cross. So, Lord, let us reflect upon those realities as we take of this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.